all I could talk about for a month. First time I was on one was up in Okay. There. Oh. You ready to roll? Hold that for later. Yep. Okay, Sin and Shin. Spock. The two Spock. front teeth. Sharp. Press. Eat. Two. Rulers. Persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehoods, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes for all my ways are known to you. Yes. Is this where the Muslims get seven times a day to pray? Uh, no, they five. Oh, it's five? Five prayer days. Five prayer times a day. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. That was annoying. We live very close to a mosque in Malaysia, and that was very annoying. Uh, okay, what do we have here? Oh, you know, we got some prayer requests first. Uh, let's see. Um, Jim Jones, triple bypass surgery on Monday. His wife Betty is trying to hang on. Obviously, she's probably a little bit uh, concerned about that. And so, um, sure. uh, let's see here. We want to keep Jim Jones in prayer. And then today, unfortunately, he's not here to enjoy it anymore, but today would have been Lynn's birthday. Hmm. Yeah, so we want to keep his family in prayer. I'm sure they're thinking about him on his birthday. And uh, what a nice guy he was. Mm. Wow. Yeah, okay. And then Sergio, about an hour and a half ago, uh, maybe two hours ago, hurt his back very badly. He's in bed with uh, hopes that tomorrow will not be, because when he hurts his back, it usually the second day is the worst. He's incapacitated, but keep Sergio in prayer as well. And, and Ed. What's that? And Ed, yeah, he's still in the hospital, and he'll supposed to be out Monday. Is that what you said? He said Friday. Friday, which is tomorrow. 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 Okay, we'll see. We'll have prayers. Ed will finally be out of the hospital because he, uh, uh, he's been, uh, like I say, if you are getting better, you want to get out of the hospital. Better you be anywhere than in the hospital. You can get staph infections and you can get anything else. So the uh, best thing to do is if you're well, you get out of the hospital. And Jody, uh, the people that listen on Sundays probably know this, but they may not know it from... Uh, last week because it was afterwards. Mm -hmm. Jody uh, last Friday uh, uh, got appendicitis and so she was in the hospital that afternoon. She had her appendix out and then uh, she got back to work yesterday. So uh, very serious but she's doing well and we're happy about that. So anyway we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer first. Heavenly Father we thank you for the chance to pray for these people, to thank you that Jody's okay, to uh, pray for those who are going to be traveling in the week ahead. We've got quite a few that are doing that. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful weather you've given us here in Florida. We're so blessed, and it's just very nice, so we appreciate that. Thank you for the rain we got this past week. And uh, Lord, we certainly ask that this class would be conducted properly and that there wouldn't be anything taught incorrectly. But if there is, please alert us to this. And Lord, uh, we certainly uh, would not want to teach something incorrect, but those things do happen. None of us are perfect. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this class. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, we got, Okay, this day in history, today must be the 5th. 
and it's not August. What am I doing Cinco going de Mayo. there? Oh yeah, Cinco de Mayo. That's right. The lady at the bank said that to me today too. Cinco <laughs> de Mayo. It's a Mexican holiday. Yeah, Why? and she's she's from Brooklyn, so it really had no bearing on her. But whatever. See here, it was a religious club that produced mostly poor results. Charles Wesley and two friends began a Christian group at Oxford University in 1728, which today Oxford University is about yeah. as pagan as, uh, you know, a Hindu temple in India. John Wesley, who had already graduated from Oxford, returned the following year as a tutor and assumed its leadership role. Oxford students made fun of the group, referring to it as the Holy Club or Methodists. By the time George Whitefield joined the group in 1733, there were eight or nine dedicated members. Is it Whitfield or Whitefield? Whitfield. Whitfield. I thought that was right. I wish they'd get rid of that E. Anyway, um, the focus of the Holy Club was on religious self-discipline. They woke up early for lengthy devotions, took communion each Sunday, fasted every Wednesday and Friday, and observed Saturday as the Sabbath in preparation for the Lord's Day. Exhorting each other to live piously and do good works, they were motivated by the belief that they were working, here it is, for their salvation, which is all that was going through my mind as I was reading that, of their souls. Yet their self-discipline brought them neither happiness nor salvation. Will it ever? The lifestyle of the Holy Club had a catastrophic effect on the life of William Morgan, one of its founders. He lost his mind and eventually lost his struggle to achieve self-disciplined perfection. Whitfield was the first Holy Club member to question these practices. He, he read a book where, his, in his words, God showed me that I must be born again. Well, what you need to do is read the Bible. You don't need to read a book about the Bible. I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Or shall I search it? I did search it, and holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth. Lord, if I am not a Christian, or if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what is Christianity, what it is, that I may not be damned at the last. God soon showed me in the reading a few lines further that truly religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantly darted, I'm sorry, was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, <clears throat> but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. His solution, however, was to try to become a new creature through further extremes of self-denial. Ah, during Lent in 1735, he only ate a little coarse bread with tea. By Holy Week, he was so weak that he could not study or even walk up a flight of stairs. His grades began to suffer, and his tutor wondered if he was going mad. His physician put him in bed, where he remained for seven weeks. Having hit bottom in his efforts to earn his salvation, Whitfield described what happened next. God was pleased to remove the heavy load <clears throat> to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith, and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory, was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. 
Surely it was a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. My joys were like a spring tide and overflowed the banks. Later, he declared, I knew the place. It may be superstitious, but perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to the place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. On May 5th, 1735, Whitfield wrote a letter to John Wesley attempting to share what had happened to him. He wrote, in all his gracious arms, I blindly throw myself. It would be more than three years before the Wesleys found his gracious arms. Have you ever found yourself trying to earn your salvation? Salvation is a gift to be received from God and there is nothing we can do to earn it. Good works do not lead us to Christ. It is our relationship with Christ that good works from which good works flow. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, God saved you by a special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. That's a paraphrase, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's probably the biggest hindrance of any that is found within supposed Christian circles is people trying to say you need to do something in order to please God. You need to do something in order to please God. If you have that attitude, you are missing the mark. And if you've missed the mark, then you have not been saved. It is totally, completely, and absolutely a gift of God. There's nothing you can do to be saved except to believe that Christ has done it all. And here we add on all kinds of things to say, you know, I keep saying it, I repeat it, I think in almost every life, ap life application, every day, is it just, you got to not have people telling you, well, if you're not doing this, you can't be saved. Or if you're doing this, you can't be saved. Jesus Christ saves. Everything after that time is up to you in obedience to him. And if somebody says, you know, uh, I don't understand why I need to do this or why I should do this if I'm saved. It's because why wouldn't you? Jesus saved you. Why wouldn't you want to know in the fullness the person who saved you or to be obedient to him? It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with a sense of appreciation. It has a sense of, has everything to do with a sense of devotion. Okay? That's why we do nice things after being saved, but if somebody says, well, you can't be saved because you don't do this, or you can't be saved because you don't do that, or, you know, your past, you need to make amends for your past, or any of those things, that has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation has only to believing what Jesus Christ did for you. He died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised again. If you believe that, you will be saved. That's all that you need. Everything else that people add into there you need to toss out the door. Doesn't mean don't do those things. It means that you don't need to do those things. Christ did everything necessary to save you. There's nothing you can do. And so just let it go, okay? It is the, the most common thing in Christianity. You get Hebrew Roots Movement people, Seventh-day Adventists, people that you've got to do this, you've got to do this. If you're not doing this, you're not, I'm sorry. That is not the gospel. It has nothing to do with the faith Amen. of Jesus Christ. There you go. Yeah, anybody that knows that is Rick. Rick is the one that when he says his prayers for people in the projects, he says it almost every single time. It is by grace you're saved, and there's no good works. And that's very, very basic. And that's what people need to hear because they all their life have been hearing things, things that you need to do. 
well, you're not gonna not gonna be able to do it and make it to heaven. Okay, like I said, do them after you're saved in appreciation. Okay, we are in the book of Philippians still. I thought we'd be done a couple weeks ago, but we're still poking through it. So um, we're in three seven, and you can start. Oh, that's a new paragraph. It I is guess. a new paragraph. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Christ. Okay, basically the same thing. <clears throat> Let's see here. All right, Paul now, and Miss Garrett showed up. She may be leaving. She says she's not feeling really spiffy today, so we want to, I was uh, glad that you came. Well, no, we need to pray for you. If you get up and walk out, that's why. I'm just letting people know. Paul now, she's all mad at me for saying what she asked me or told me before she even showed up. Okay, Paul now sums up all of the confidence in the flesh of the previous two verses in one thought. Beginning with, but. The word is given to contrast those things of supposed high accolade and honor. Why don't you read them instead of me getting the Bible out? Read the last two verses again, because this last is a contrast. Two. Yeah. Okay, um, let's just go back to the whole paragraph. Okay. It's a short one. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh... I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But mm -hmm. whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Yep. Okay, so that's what the but is for. It's given to contrast those things of supposed high accolade and honor, Instead, he says, what things were gain to me? All of those things that he thought were gain. Excuse me. The word kurdos or gain in Greek is plural. Thus, it says gains. He lumps all of these worldly badges of honor and distinction into one, using a word which indicates profit, which is acquired through faith trading. That helps word studies. In other words, he had put his faith in these things as that which he assured him is high status in this world and is right standing before God in the next. Okay, right now, I uh, haven't seen it before. It's an older movie, but it's uh, Apostle Paul or Saul. Anyway, it's, um, I think it's called Saul of Tarsus, something like that. It, it goes back about 10 years, maybe somewhere around there. And uh, I clicked on it a few days ago and I forgot that I clicked on it. So, it said, do you want to continue? And I continued it last night while Hidiko was doing something. And um, it, it, it's not bad. Obviously, it's a movie. So it doesn't really, it, it follows so far the book of Acts, but it, you know, it's got all kinds of stuff in there to make it a movie. So a lot of people don't like that. Oh, it doesn't follow the Bible. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry. If you did, it would be a 20 minute long movie. That's, that's all there is. You have to have some stuff in there. But the point is that he, it, it's very much what he talks about right here. It, it, I, the movie is following at least that part of it. You know, I'm a Pharisee and I'm this and I'm that. And and uh, it's it, so far the acting has been very good. It's been a little brutal as far as, uh, you know, the martyrs getting, uh, they took out Stefan and they've taken out a couple people since him. And so uh, it, it's it's been a rather good movie. I can send you the link or the name of it if you want to watch it. I think it's on Amazon Prime or something, hmm. whatever. Anyway, um, uh, it's going so well. But, you know, it's funny that this, uh, I remembered that this movie was out. I, I hate to say this, and I won't say what church because I'm not going to pick on the guy. But I had a friend that went to a church here in Sarasota. And uh, his he was 
emailing his pastor about something. He had this beef, okay? And the pastor came back and he was quoting this movie, what happened in the movie, which isn't in the Bible. And I thought, you know, if you're getting your theology from movies as a pastor of a church, there's a bit of a problem there. Anyway, and I remembered that when I saw this part, I was saying, I bet you this is the same movie. And when it came to it, I said, there he is. That's what he was quoting in the movie is, so you gotta be careful. I've told people this, you know, in the projects is that when people will start quoting the Left Behind series or something, you gotta stop them. That's not the Bible, okay? And if I had known this pastor at the time, I would have said, listen, you know, you don't wanna quote a movie about the Bible. You wanna know the Bible. But anyway, I, and I don't think he's a pastor here anymore. If he is, his church moved and it got big and then it folded. So maybe he started another one or something, but I didn't know the guy personally. But uh, anyway, it was just, it was one of those embarrassing things. But we'll go on. That's what the movie was talking about, it was Paul's achievements, all the things that he thought was gained. And just at this point, last night, he was blinded and Ananias got the vision of going to heal him. Okay, so it is following the narrative, but with all the stuff added in. And so I'm waiting to see what kind of a change is gonna be in this person. If it's gonna be reflect a change as it does in Paul in the Bible, because it's a very clear change right here is what we're talking about. The word kurdos or gain, I said that. Um, in other words, he had put his faith in these things as that which assured him his high status in this world and his right standing before God in the next. Instead, though, he continues with the words, these things I have counted loss for Christ. He counts the gains of the first clause with zemia or loss. The word signifies damage or detriment, a mercantile term for loss. In other words, you're somebody that's selling something, you lose money on it. A bad deal, unsuccessful business transaction, which results in a fine or a penalty or a forfeiture. All of that is tied up in this word. It could be any of those things. Helps word studies once again. Uh, if you uh, are wondering about any word in the Bible, you can go and click on the biblehub.com and you type in the verse you want and it'll pull up the verse. And what you do is you go to the Greek or Hebrew. It'll say Greek or Hebrew. Click on that link and then it has all of it down there and you can click on the strong number and it'll pull up all the information that anybody could ever wanna know about that word. It'll give you all kinds of information. It'll give you the root of that word. It'll take you to the cognate verbs and adjectives and all that kind of stuff. It's a great, great resource. I love biblehub.com and I have it up probably one to six or seven pages of it every Monday to do my sermons. And every commentary, every morning, I have at least three pages up so I can refer to different things in there. So I recommend it, but if you want to know these words and you want to know what it means, what the, the scholarly, analytical definition of that is, that you'll get the BDB, which is the Brown Driver Briggs, you'll get the Strong's Concordance, you'll get the NAS Concordance, and all of these people analyze this word from their own studies, and it's, it's all right there. So there you go with that. And help stud word studies is generally what that is is in its own study. What they do is they take studies of three or four different people and put them together. And so, yeah, like a little dashboard. So helps word studies. I just give them the credit. And if you want to know more, go to helps word studies. And then from there, they'll show you where it came from. Okay. But that's whenever I look up a word, that's where I go to. Okay. So in other words, it is as if he, Paul, 
first gambled on those things to be his secure status. Here's a guy that, you know, like I was saying, like the Hebrew Roots Movement, they're gambling on their right standing before God by observing feasts of the Lord. They're gambling on observing the Seventh-day Sabbath in the Seventh-day Adventists. This is a gamble. They're, they're taking hope that what they are doing is pleasing enough to God to get them to heaven, okay? I'm sorry, the gamble will not pay off. And Paul was saying, that's exactly what I was doing. Okay, he gambled on those things to be secure in his status and then found out the bet was a loser. They weren't a sure bet or even a break-even one. Instead, they were a losing bet and a source of loss. Once again, I talked about him last week a little bit. Same thing. Maybe it was two weeks ago. The Pharisee that went in before the temple and said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy and I tithe every week and I do this and I do that and I fast and I'm super duper and the the guy tax that, the tax collector is down there beating on his breast and he wouldn't even raise his head and he says, Lord, I'm a sinner, I'm so sorry. And Jesus said, This man rather than that went home justified before God. This Paul was that guy. He's that guy. I I'm a Pharisee, I'm this and I'm that, I'm so great, and look at I'm gambling on earning heaven. And you can't earn heaven. It comes right back to what we talked about in that daily, uh, you know, this day in Christian history. You cannot earn grace. If you say, I've got to do something. It's so frustrating to hear somebody say, oh yeah, you were saved, but you can lose your salvation. Because if you can lose your salvation, it was never of grace, ever. Charlie Garrett gets saved when he's 27 years old and he becomes a preacher and he's a great guy. And at 32 years old, he kills somebody. You lost your salvation. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way because if that is true, then my salvation was never based on grace through faith. It doesn't matter at what point, from the moment you're saved until the moment that you die, it doesn't matter what point. If you can lose what God has promised you, then it was not of grace at all. It was always of works because I had to work in order to keep my salvation. It is the most detrimental heresy that I can think of is these people that tell you, yes, you can lose your salvation. That is a failing God with a failing gospel, okay? It is not grace. Now, you could lose your... You could lose your life, that's right. You no, go no. killing, what? It's just that it's like, if you if you could lose your your salvation, you would. You all would. It's you like, would. Stop. It, it like, would be within a minute. Mm -hmm. So I, it's it's so damaging to people, and then they get out there and they. A lot of people will say, "Well, okay, that's true," and then the rest of their lives they're trying to earn what they may have already gotten. The whole thing is just it's so sad. Well, this is Paul here. He's trying to earn his salvation, thinking I've got it. I am the key of Israel. I'm the high status, and he's not. The contrast, the contrast of a using, I better read that all again. The contrast of using a plural word for the supposed gains and a singular for the actual loss is striking. He's got all these things that he thinks are gains and yet there's one loss. All his supposed gains were realized in one great loss, which was for Christ. He had to walk away from it all in order to come to Christ. There's not this gain and this gain and this gain. Oh, you know, these weren't okay, but this was okay. Everything before you come to Christ, everything doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you were. It doesn't matter how kind you were. It doesn't matter anything about your human existence before you come to Christ. It is loss, everything, because he did the work. 
So everything that you've done, everything that you are, everything that makes up the human being that you are is nothing, literally nothing without Jesus. We talked about that last week and I've repeated again this week. Without Jesus, you are nothing. And with Jesus, you have everything, everything. Okay, so he had to walk away from it all in order to come to Christ. And so come he did with empty hands concerning each and every one of them. And not only that, but the perfect tense of the word counted signifies that they were lost and they continued to be lost. It's not just that he was a Pharisee and that wasn't enough to get him to Christ, but even after coming to Christ, it's not enough to keep him in Christ. Only Christ does the work. Only Christ. And afterward, all of the things that you did before are still just loss. Okay? There would never, never, ever be a time when he could use those things as a benefit. They were cast to the dustbin of the history of his life. All was Christ, and Christ was his all in all. That's it. It's Jesus or it is nothing. I, I, I don't understand how anybody could come to any other conclusion if they have thought it through. Now, once again, we don't think things through, and that's why we go to Bible studies, and that's why we write our own commentaries, and that's why we meditate on the Word during the day, because we need to think through the simple issues. This is a very basic issue. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Basic, simple things, and yet, how many people have got it wrong? I would say probably 90% of the people in the world cannot understand grace. They cannot understand. doesn't mean they're not saved. I'm not saying that at all. But they are saved, and then they don't understand the grace that was bestowed upon them. They say, I don't need to go to church because I'm saved, or I don't need to learn the word because I'm saved. That is misunderstanding grace. If they understood the grace, they would want to go to church. They would want to read the Bible. They would want to study and to know him. They would want to walk outside and praise him for every beautiful thing that they see in front of them. That is understanding grace. Grace is saying, I didn't deserve it and I have it and I'm so thankful for it. That is understanding grace. Life application. Think hard on the words of this verse. The highest honors, and I'm going to tell you what, think about it. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of Israel. All of these things. He was the highest, the epitome of Israelite society. And Israelite society was the society chosen by God to bring in the Messiah of the world. If there's any person ever in the history of Israel that deserved God's favor, you would think it would be Paul, right? You would think it would be Paul. And yet here is the man himself saying that it means nothing, absolutely nothing. Without Jesus Christ, it is nothing. Think hard on the words of this verse. The highest honors and achievements that the greatest in Hebrew society could obtain were utterly useless in establishing a right relationship with God. If this is so, and it is because Paul says it right here, what more could you add to what Christ has done. Any of us, we couldn't. Nothing. Diddly do. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and be content that his work alone is sufficient for your passage into the heavenly realms. Okay, this past week I had somebody that I was emailing with 
and uh, they had a beef with me some time ago. I, you know, I say a lot of the times, listen, if you disagree, just disagree with me, okay? You don't need to send me an email. And when it's something, especially a core message like this, there's no point in emailing me about, are you saved forever? There's no point in, and that's why I say it. If there is something that is set and it's not worth debating, why would you want to debate about it, okay? There's no point in that type of thing. If something is in the Word of God, if it is explicit, if you disagree, disagree. You are entitled to be as wrong as you want about that issue. There are issues, and I say at the beginning of every Bible study, I say the same thing. Lord, if I am wrong in a point, please let me know. And I mean that. If somebody emails me and they say, you know, I found that you had the wrong date, the wrong year in Deuteronomy, whatever, concerning this, I will check it. And if I'm wrong, I will change it in my timeline of the world. Or if somebody finds something that's wrong in, you know, the Esther series, and it's something that is actually doctrinal in nature, I will change it and I'll thank them. I appreciate those things. If I am teaching something incorrect, but if I am teaching on eternal salvation, the nature of Jesus, the Trinity, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna debate people on those things. If you wanna be wrong about the Trinity, go ahead. Oh, there's no Trinity, there's, you know, God is one and, it, Listen, I've done the Doctrine series on it. I don't need to debate it with you, okay? So when people take offense at that, that's their own offense. I really don't care. I'm not going to waffle in core doctrine with people. It's not going to happen, okay? I will be most appreciative when people send me something and say, you're wrong about this particular issue, and here it is, here's why, okay? There's a difference between the two. But if people take offense at that, that's that's fine. I don't care. I'm, I will continue to say it because I'm not going to ever change my mind on eternal salvation. I'm not going to change my mind on grace. You must have grace, and once you've received grace, you cannot lose grace. Or it's not grace, okay? So why debate it? Okay, um, uh, trust in Christ, trust in Christ, and be content that his work alone is sufficient for your passage into the heavenly realms. Okay, verse 3a. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Okay, it's very, very close. The first two words were different about, and the rest of it's all, okay, yes. Um, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Almost identical. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Paul's amazing statement here is an explanation and an expansion of the previous verse. Taken together, but what things were gained to me? These things I have counted loss for Christ. All of those wonderful accolades, loss. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The words, what things, of the previous verse was speaking of his great personal qualities of lineage and heritage, along with his special status within Israelite society. He had all of that. It was, um, uh, let me see here, make a note here, okay. Um, it was uh, along with his special status within Israelite society. Paul had all of the status, he had all of the accolades. We talked about that a minute ago. And that are what things, what things, are now lost. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. However, setting those things aside was not all that Paul considered loss. It's not, not just the past accolades, 
okay? These things are lost for Christ. Rather, he continues on with yet. Indeed, I also count all things lost, everything. There was nothing that he had worked for or accomplished in his life that was of any value to him in relation to true satisfaction or boasting he now made in his Lord. All things. He was a Roman citizen. Okay, he was born in Tarsus. He was this and he was that. I'm talking about things outside of Israelite society or that may have been tied in with it to make him you know, more competent in this manner or not. He certainly spoke Greek. He spoke Latin. He spoke Aramaic. He uh, uh, probably spoke, he certainly spoke Hebrew as well. I say Latin. It's pretty certain that he would have, would have spoken Latin because he was taken to the formal courts and he conversed with the people there. He also uh, was a Roman citizen, so the chances are he probably spoke Latin, although that's not in the Bible. I wanted to qualify that. But all of these things were who he was, and he could say, you know, look at all the training I have. Look at all the... That's why he says, I speak tongues more than all of you. It's because he spoke more languages than everybody. He didn't speak more in gobbledygook during the sermon than everybody else. He spoke real languages and he could understand when somebody else spoke in that language and he could translate it for him. He was letting people know that. But all of these things, all of these things that he was, he counted all of it as loss, okay? It was loss for Christ. Rather, he continues on with, yet indeed I count all things loss. There was nothing that he had worked for or accomplished in his life that was of any value to him in relation to true satisfaction or boasting he now made in his Lord. When he met Christ, the most precious memory and the most hoped for goal were alike considered his loss. His very being was converted from that which is earthly and carnal to that which is heavenly and spiritual. Nothing of this world mattered and was loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know, I've been watching what's been going on with the left in this nation. I'll make a point about this. This isn't political so much as it is moral. You're watching what's going on with the, the leak in the Supreme Court decision that came out a day or two ago, okay? And they want to overturn Roe versus Wade according to this this brief that was typed up for the Supreme Court and somebody came and released it, which if I hope they catch him. I hope they do and I hope that person goes to jail, but whatever. Um, and the, the people that are out right now all over America going crazy, pulling out their hair, protesting, most of them, most of them are already in states that it's not going to change anything because right. this is now a states' rights issue where it should be, where it always should have been, okay? They're out there doing all of these things and they are literally, they're almost demonic mm -hmm. in their screaming, in their accusations and beating people up. It's almost like seeing people demons. And all of these people, every one of them thinks that they're doing the right thing. They think, they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't. Their thinking is so twisted, it is so demented that they think that they're doing the right thing. And the point is that Paul really thought he was doing the right thing when he was persecuting the church. He was out there doing the things he was doing, taking letters to Damascus to arrest people and bring them back in triumph. He really believed that he was doing the right thing. And yet he was completely wrong. Now, he could have been do it, doing this, you know, a couple hundred years later under the dispensation of the law and there's no hint of the Messiah around and he'd be doing the right thing. He'd be observing the law of Moses. He'd be having people that were blaspheming taken out and tried and executed, and that's the right thing to do. That's what the law says to do. But when Messiah had come, 
that dynamic changed because Messiah is the fulfillment of the law. Paul just didn't get that. Well, these people out there right now that are doing these things in America, and they're, they're literally going crazy, if any of them in the future, it might be one or it might be a million of them, if they find out who Jesus is, their lives are going to be just like we're talking about right now. They're going to be completely converted in who they are. They're going to go from almost being demonic animals, and I mean that sincerely. If, just go watch what's going on yeah. out there. They will go from that to a state of complete, you know, breaking down in tears over their actions. They're going to have a, a change in their hearts and in their minds. But right now, they are so far from God, and yet they really believe they're doing the right thing. Yeah. So this is the state of the world that unregenerate man is in. And Paul was an unregenerate man. He had not come to Christ. He was working out his own salvation in the way that he thought was right. These people out there right now think that what they are doing is making them better people or making them better whatever they think. I can't even imagine what they're thinking, but that is what it is. So from that perspective, if we can look at Paul as an example of all these crazy people out there that are doing these things, it may give us a change in heart towards them. I don't know how to talk to somebody like that. It actually took the Lord appearing to Paul to change him. And, you know, maybe the rapture or something like that is what it's going to take to make these people change. I have no idea. But there's no sound reasoning with them because they really believe that they're doing the right thing. You had something? Paul said in Timothy, he did this in ignorance. In ignorance. And that's what these people are doing. They're, they're obviously demented. There's no doubt about it. You cannot do what they are doing out there in the world right now and say, this is good. So it's obviously a demented state of mind. But... They're doing it in their own state of ignorance of who God is, of his righteousness, and all of this. So once again, I'm not saying that you have to go out and, and attempt to force evangelize these people. It's not going to work. You're just going to make it worse, and you're probably going to get yourself killed by him in the process. But they're doing these things because they think that what they are doing is somehow the right thing to do. Okay, And Paul, keep thinking of this guy. You know, one of the uh, prophecy update I did about... Uh, three or four years ago, there is a guy in Israel right now. He is the number one Jew that persecutes the Messianic believers. He is the one guy that is there forcing, anytime they meet for a, a you know, for a songs, every year they get together and they sing songs. And uh, anytime that these people meet or anytime they are in their little Messianic synagogues and worshiping Jesus, this guy is the guy that is the chief of them. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if he came to Christ? what a difference he could make, just like Paul did, okay? And so you have to look at people at the same time as really not liking them, really not liking their actions. You have to look at them with a state of pity, okay? And I know this because we're in the projects every week and we see people that we just have to pity. They'll be belligerent to Christ. They'll be belligerent to the gospel. And a couple years later, they might be coming to Christ. But it takes time. It takes effort, all right? I don't know what the answer for these people is, but if you think of Paul and then think of them, you can more empathize with the situation they're in. Their brains are not functioning properly. Okay, um, I'll say it again. Nothing of this world for Paul uh, mattered and was lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The word for excellence here is actually a verb. It indicates the excelling knowledge. In other words, whatever is of note is vastly outshined by knowing Christ. Everything. 
If one carries a dab of perfume into a perfume factory, what was considered a sweet and powerful smell will be lost in the overwhelming amount of fragrance which fills the whole building. If one were to have a flashlight on a path while walking in full sunshine, the light of the flashlight would not even be noticeable. If one were to be in a dry desert with but a drop of water left in the canteen, it would be forgotten if that person were to come upon a large flowing river of the purest water. Paul is trying to describe that which cannot be fully described. The superlative nature of Christ and what he offers simply overwhelms anything that we could hold up as a value. Okay, now think about that once again from I'm saved, Christ saved me, it is of grace and it is not of works. And think of all of the things that Christians try to add on to their salvation after being saved. It's nothing. It's literally nothing. Those are works for rewards and for losses for us. They have nothing to do with our status before Jesus Christ. They have this much to do with our status before Christ. We go down to the projects. There's one, two, three, four, five of us right now that are there almost every week. Okay, one of them's going to be leaving soon and he's going to be bailing out for fairer climates. But we are down there every single week and we are not adding to what Christ did at all. All of our cumulative efforts over 16 years do not mean anything to the salvation that we obtained. It means nothing. All we're doing is we're earning something in heaven as far as rewards and losses are. And when we get them, it's not going to matter because we will have seen the source of those blessings. And so what does it matter? Because he is the source of everything that we will receive. I'd rather see him than have the rewards in my hands, okay? If people would think this way, if they would understand what is going on in our relationship with Christ, we would see that our works are insufficient, as Paul is saying, before salvation, but they are insufficient after salvation. And there's nothing we can do to lose what God has given us. If you just look at it from that perspective, I don't know how people can't simply understand the magnificence of what God has done for us. We are that gross, even after being saved. That's all there is to it. He is the greatest source of wonder. Okay, one would think of loss. Did I say this? Yeah, for this reason, he continues with the words of strength by saying, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. One would think of loss as a weakness, but when that loss is compared to what has been obtained in its place, it is the greatest source of strength of all. No thing and no accumulation of things, even to an exceedingly enormous amount of stuff, could ever compare to the infinite gain which is experienced in knowing Christ. So when people say, well, I don't think I need to go to church. I've got a friend. I'm not going to say where he's at, but I'd like to beat him up. I see him every Thursday afternoon. I'd like to punch him in his head. He's a saved Christian. He's a young man who was reached, uh, married not too long ago. And I'm saying, you need to go to church on Sunday. I Tell him, you don't need to come here. I mean, he's not going to understand what we're talking about unless you know the Bible well enough. You come in here, you don't know what we're talking about. That's fine. Go to your old church that he used to go to. Now that he's married, his wife needs to have a Christian understanding. She's saved, but I mean, she knows Jesus kind of, but she's she's not developed at all in her thinking. She needs to have that because they're going to have children one of these days. And they're going to be the only source of hope for that kid because they're going to be going to school. 
five days a week, eight hours a day, and the parents are not going to be able to compete with what that kid is being told in those schools. So I'd like to beat him up and just knock him with a frying pan over his head, but I see him once a week, every week, and I keep saying the same thing to him. He saved you. He loves you. Show some appreciation for it. Anyway, I just, I won't give his name, but pray for the boy that, that uh, just needs to get back. And he's a great kid. My mom knows him, even though she doesn't know who I'm talking about. He's a really nice boy. And, oh, you do. Okay. All right. He's a great kid, but he really needs to just, before that child gets conceived, he needs to have that wife in the routine of going to church and saying, I really like this. I'm hearing a good message and I'm being uplifted. You know, I understand his work is very hard. It takes him late into the night, but listen, Sunday morning will be over and you can go back to bed. Okay, now I'm going to read what I just read again because it leads into the Greek word that's important. Understand this, understanding this, he then describes what all of his gain actually means in relation to knowing Christ as Lord. He says he, he, says he counts them as rubbish. The word is skibalon. It is only found here in the Bible, and it is believed to be a combination of the word dog and the word throw. In other words, all of his gain is that which was only worth throwing to the dogs, such as filthy refuse, table scraps, and the like. It is good for nothing, and it simply is discarded. Considering that he is called the Judaizers of verse 2, dogs, he is indicating that their teachings and the things that they boast in are just that. They are refuse. They're not even worth considering. Instead of being pleased with these things and trusting in them, he has cast them away so that he may gain Christ. His words. The play on words seems evident. He says the loss that he suffered from his supposed gains is a gain in and of itself. The treasure and honor of knowing Christ is of infinite value because it stems from the infinite creator. Nothing else could compare to this, and so any loss is, by default, gain. Life application. We live in this world, and we can and should enjoy what this world provides. Okay, that takes us back to what we were looking at in this day in Christian history. These guys were self-denying, they were observing the Sabbath, which they weren't observing the Sabbath because if they were, they would have had to have read the Bible and find out what the Sabbath entails and they wouldn't be doing it. So they weren't observing the Sabbath, but they were trying to observe the Sabbath and they were denying themselves in this and denying themselves in that. And what did it end up? One of them went insane, the other one was pretty much on the same path, okay? It doesn't matter how much you follow that path. It will never, ever satisfy. And that's why these people in the Hebrew Roots Movement are on the same par as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Is because the Jehovah's Witnesses have the highest rate of suicide of any supposed, and I say supposed because they're not, but supposed Christian denomination. It's because they have no hope of eternal security. They have no hope of salvation because they don't know the correct Messiah. The Hebrew Roots Movement people may think they know the right Jesus, but they don't know the right gospel that leads to the right Jesus. And so they're trying to earn God's favor. They're trying to merit his favor. And in the end, they will be the most miserable people of all because they will have not attained what is given to them for free. It's so sad to see that. And these people that were doing this in this one year in Christian history, a couple of them finally got out of it. Actually, three that, you know, George Whitfield and... Uh, 
John and Charles Wesley all got to it. But I think it was John, it may have been Charles, one of them, I think it was John, he said when he was going as a missionary to Georgia, he says, I'm going to the New World to convert the heathens. Oh, but who will convert me? He knew he didn't have a right relationship with God. And he's out there trying to work his way to God by converting people to something that he doesn't even understand. Okay? So you've got these people that are in this boat. And then finally, George White Whitfield, he finds out who Christ is and the whole weight is lifted off him. Just like Paul said about himself. The weight is off everything that I was trying to do is loss. And that loss is now actually gain. Okay. We should never allow those things to have us, the things of the world. Rather, we are to have them, but only with the loose grasp of them. When the time is right, Christ will come and those things which we now possess will seem as the most useless and unimportant things imaginable. Let us not hold fast to this world as we pass through it. Okay? When people come over to the house, I'm almost embarrassed when new people come to the house because I got this really nice desk. Okay, and they walk in, they must think, oh, that will cost a lot of money. You know, char you know, so I always have to tell them the story. All right, I'm, I'll tell you the story so that if you ever come to my house, you'll know this. I had, I, we're facing the bay, we're on Siesta Key, and so, uh, you know, things don't last very long in this world, especially in Florida where the air is salty, and especially on Siesta Key where it's always salty. Okay, so we have this house and it faces the bay and I had a row of windows in the front that needed to be replaced. And when I came back in 1993, I replaced them and they lasted about three and a half years, maybe four years, and they, they didn't do a good job and all the windows were bad. It may, may have been a little longer than that. But anyway, I finally said, well, I need to replace these again because this is where the wind from the bay comes and the whole house would be full to, filled with salt air and rain and they had to be replaced. And so I got a quote, and just for these few windows facing that way, it was $5,000. I'm sorry, it was $7,000. But I had to replace it, and I didn't want to wall it up, because if I walled it up, then you wouldn't have the view. Okay, so we put those in, and they have to meet the hurricane code on Siesta Key. I don't know if that's the case off, it does it on the, the mainland, do you have to meet the code? At? Okay, so you know how expensive they are. They're just unbelievable. So later, the other windows that don't face the bay went bad. And they'd been there for probably 50 years and we never used them because you couldn't open them and I thought I need to get these replaced and I got a bid and just for those couple windows on both sides it was mostly wall but a couple windows it was $5,000 I know and I said I'm getting to a point with this and I said I'm not going to do it so we tore out the walls completely, and I'm glad I did because there was rot in one corner and there was rot in the opposite corner, and they would have had to have been replaced eventually anyway. And so we tore it all out and we put in these this kind of like concrete stuff that looks like wood. It's really neat. So the outside of the house looks like an old house, but it's made of concrete, so it'll never go bad. And I walled in where the windows were, and I put in um, uh, you know resistant glass, and I put in stained glass windows. And they look really expensive, but I got them on eBay and I bartered with the guy. I said, if I buy four, which they're already, you buy a nice stained glass window in America and it's like $1,000, go on eBay and it's like 100 bucks. So it would have been 500 but I said, if I buy four, will you give me one? He said, yeah. So I got five windows. And then I, uh, with the wall work, with the windows and with everything, it was less than the windows would have been. 
And so for 25 years, I had been sitting on the floor. Mom knows this. I have this, this table from Malaysia. I'd sat on the floor with my computer work. I did that for 25 years. And I said, you know what? I can afford a desk now because I would have spent the money anyway. And so I bought a desk that came, was made by the Amish people in Ohio. It's solid wood, handmade. It was the exact wood. They said, whatever wood you want. I picked the wood because it matched the floor that's in the house. They even made me a nice, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, two seat sofa that matches the desk. Okay, it's a big L-shaped desk. And if you went to Home Depot and bought a particle wood desk, it would cost more than what I paid them for. This is solid wood. They brought it down from Ohio after making it. They carried it into the house and plopped it down and it cost less than a regular desk would have. Nowadays, it's probably more because they know what these things are worth. But this yes. is only, yeah, it's only like eight years ago or five years ago. And I think I paid $1,200 for it. It was So everything costs less. So the point is, now I'm gonna to get to the point after I've talked about my desk. People come in and they see this really nice man cave. I've got five stained glass windows. I've got this beautiful, beautiful desk. And I tell them the story, and it means nothing to me. If the house burned down tomorrow, I always think about what's in this house. If it burned down, what would I miss? And I can't really think of anything that I would miss because I know Jesus. And so the whole point of what I'm saying is don't hold on to the things of this world. I got a nice desk. I thank the Lord for it. It's very wonderful that I can move around and I can do all my work and I've got two uh yeah well yeah if I run out of the house I'm going to run out with my bible that's correct and maybe one of my dogs but uh, uh, yeah uh, she better get out on her own <laughs> anyway the the point is that when people come in I'm kind of embarrassed about having this expensive looking desk when it wasn't really that much I would have had to have spent the money anyway and I don't care about that desk. I love that it's there. I love that it's comfortable. But if I didn't have it, I'd still be sitting on the floor and doing the same job. It doesn't really matter. So that's my my thing about the life application that I just read you. Um, read it again. We live in this world and we can, can and should enjoy the things it provides, okay? But we should never allow those things to have us. Rather, we are to have them, but keep a loose grasp on them. If you can do that with the things you have, then when they get lost or ruined or, you know, I got this truck out here. It's a nice truck, but somebody came by one time, probably because of the Jesus stickers and they keyed up the side of it. I was like, okay, you know, I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's what you're going to do. I didn't get all bent out of shape on it because it's stuff. It's just a truck. Okay. It's maddening that people do that kind of thing, but whatever. Okay. So that's my little badge of honor on the side of the car as I got my, my key job. Okay, 3-9. Three, 3-9. Nine. Three, nine. Wait, let me, let me get there first because okay, last time I... Say oh, go ahead. The, uh, when, when people are saying that like, you, know, you have to do this and this and this, it's like, where is this written that yeah. you can find what exactly I have to do I said any. exactly that to somebody yesterday. They were asking a question, and I said, well, the onus is now on them. They've said this to you. I want you to tell them next time you're in church, because he attends a church south of here. I said, I want you to tell them to find in the Bible where what they're telling you is true, and then you do it. Okay? That's exactly what I told them. You're right. That's exactly. I want you to defend what you've just told me, and if they can't do it, then tell them to just... You know, S-H-U-T-U-P, okay? Just leave me alone. You, your, your words mean nothing if it's not based on the Word of God. You're, good point. Very good point. Yeah, okay. I, I like to ask the folks that push that. It's like, 
How long after you evangelize somebody and they come to Christ do you tell them you're going to lose Christ? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is it like the same sentence or yeah, do you, just do you wait a few it? weeks and let them get real happy with being saved and then tell, oh, by the way. Oh, by the way. You're going to lose your, like, if you don't do this, this, this. This and this. this. Hey, insane. It's like, it's pleasing man. Pleasing anyway, man. Okay. Nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Okay, that is close enough where I'm not going to reread it. It's very close. Okay, so these are obviously very easy to translate verses because there's almost no variation at all. And Paul is probably being really precise where a translator will pick it up and say, this is all we can say. Anyway, following up on his words of the previous verse where he said that I may gain... Christ. Paul now shows what that means. It is to be found in him. In dying to the world, we live to Christ. We positionally move from Adam to Jesus. Whereas we were once fallen and destined to eternal separation from God, because of both inherited and committed sin, we become alive in Christ. Having both canceled our sin debt dies with him on the cross, and we are granted his righteousness. And once again, I want to go back to Paul and say that what I said, you've got these people that were in Israel, and they were living out their law, and they were doing the things that were required of the law. Okay? Now, obviously, the law is a heart thing, as well as Moses said it all the way back at the beginning, circumcise your heart. Jeremiah said the same thing. But if people were doing the things that they were supposed to of the law, and they were acknowledging on the Day of Atonement, I've sinned, and I, you know, I, I accept your atoning sacrifice, then they would have been covered according to the law. That was what God granted to them. Okay, With Paul, I have no idea what his heart was before. But we can assume that it wasn't right with the Lord. But even if it was, even if he was 200 years before the coming of Christ and he said, you know, I've done wrong this year and I'm so thankful for the Day of Atonement, okay? He would have been saved, okay? He would have been in right standing with God because he was doing the things of the law as best he could and he was acknowledging his failings before the law. But in the coming of Christ, that ended. And so you can see the difference between the dispensation of the law and the dispensation of grace. Paul was at that time where there was this, this thing going on. And it, once again, it's always been of the heart. It's always been, and so I, I'm not here to read Paul's heart and say he wasn't saved before and he wouldn't been saved ever, blah, blah, blah. But the attitude of the heart is what is going on here, okay? And so uh, that those people that did not come to Christ had the wrong attitude of the heart. And the people that are still not coming to Christ today, I'm talking about in the Jewish community, do not have the right attitude of the heart. They have been told wrong. They believe wrong. They have not come to God through Christ. And also they're not observing the law, which the law requires that they observe it if you're under the law, and they are under the law. So you can see there's a lot going on in here. But uh, we'll go back and uh, 3.9, where it just ended here. Where was that? Um, oh, it's on this side. Following up on his words of the previous verse, where he said that I may gain Christ. All of that stuff that was going on. Paul now shows what that means, is to be found in him. In dying to the world, we live to Christ. We positionally move from Adam to Jesus. Whereas we were once fallen and destined to eternal separation. That's why I made that point there. 
They're fallen and destined to eternal separation from God because of both inherited and committed sin. The law had provisions to take care of those two things. It was the Day of Atonement, it was, but it was always based on the heart, okay? If they did not have a circumcised heart toward the Lord under the law, they were not forgiven, okay? And if they did, they would have been forgiven. So that's why I said that. Both inherited and committed sin were dealt with under the law in anticipation of Christ, and now they are dealt with in Christ because of what he has done under the law, okay? Having both canceled. Our sin debt dies with him on the cross, and we are granted his righteousness. All of those people that had faith in the coming of Messiah and did the things of the law, in that anticipation, their sin debt was taken care of when Christ died. And everybody after Christ that accepts what Christ has done, every one of them will be saved. Okay, but it's an attitude of the heart. If you believe that you have to earn that, you do not have the right attitude of the heart. Okay, Paul explains this by saying, not having my own righteousness. If you're saying I need to do this in order to be pleasing to God, that's your own righteousness. Not having my own righteousness. This should be worded, not having a righteousness of my own. It then eliminates any other type of righteousness than the one that he will identify. Something which could be implied in this translation. Paul is stating clearly and unambiguously that he possesses no such righteousness, and then he qualifies it, which is from the law. This idea is explained by Paul elsewhere in Galatians chapter 2. Let me read that to you. He says in Galatians chapter 2, and I know Galatians is this teeny little book, and when you go looking for it, sometimes it's hard to find. You go buy it so quickly. But Galatians 2, 15 and 16, it says... Um, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. This is Paul speaking to Peter, giving him his education that he didn't get when he was under Jesus. He let it slip, actually. He did get it, but he let it slip. And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay? That is what Paul is telling him. That is what Paul is telling us here. Okay? The law could not justify or make righteous anyone. Rather, it stood opposed to that. Only a person with inherent righteousness could satisfy the law, but other than Jesus, there is none righteous. Let me make a note right here. And, okay. Instead of being justified by the law, Paul says that he is found in Christ Jesus by possessing a righteousness, here's his words, which is through faith in Christ. Faith in the work of Christ is what grants someone righteousness. This is explained in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we read earlier under this devotional. However, Paul is showing the contrast of this to that of those who apply adherence to the law into their life and conduct. So you've got Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then you've got the people that contrast that. And so in Romans 10, 3, he explains why this is so. So let me take you to Romans 10. And it says there in verse 3, For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then he goes on, For Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's it. It's the end. It is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ bears inherent righteousness, and he also fulfilled the law. Through faith in him, righteousness is imputed to us. If we reinsert the law, we seek to establish our own righteousness apart from Christ. Once again, Seventh-day Adventists, you must observe the Sabbath, okay? And they have other things. You know, you can't drink Coke, and you're not supposed to eat meat, and this and that, and one thing. And it just goes on in a Pepsi, I guess. Whatever. It goes, it, all these legalistic additions, okay, the Hebrew Roots Movement, you got to do this, and you, gotta, and you can't eat that, okay? Every bit of that, every single bit of that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thus it is no gospel. Yeah, that's right. Wrong gospel. It is no gospel. As Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, anybody who does these is anathema. I say it again. Even an angel in heaven comes and tells you, or we ourselves, let it be anathema. Okay? One gospel, it is faith in Christ. You know, and I know that we've probably said this, what, 800 times today? It can't be said enough. It cannot be said enough because that's why we have churches all over the world that teach things that you have to do, do, do. Okay? After you're saved, then do. Then do. Not before and not for after being saved, but for gratitude of being saved. Okay? Um, read that again. If we insert the law, we seek to establish our own righteousness apart from Christ. In this, there can be no hope. Only by faith in Christ can we possess his righteousness. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That's Paul's words. Charles Ellicott states this concerning the final two clauses of this verse. His words, this verse is notable as describing the true righteousness, first imperfectly as coming through faith of Jesus Christ, a description which discloses to us only its means and not its origin, next completely as a righteousness coming from God on the sole condition of faith. Faith being here viewed not as the means, but as the condition of receiving the divine gift. It's not the means, it is the condition. You do this and you will receive the gift, okay? It is by grace through faith. That's the means. Life application. What do you suppose you could add to the work of Jesus to satisfy God's righteous demands. As I say week after week, and I point up at the cross, and I say, he did all that. What are you going to add to it? Oh, thanks. I know you tried hard, but it wasn't enough. God, I got this one. I can take care of it instead of you. You can't add to it. Okay? Let's see. He was born without sin. Were you? He lived under the law of Moses perfectly. Have you? He died in fulfillment of the law. Did you? He annulled the law through its fulfillment. Did you know? He offers us salvation by grace, imputing his righteousness to us if we simply believe. Do you? Okay then, what more can you add to these things in order to be more righteous before God? You tell me. Think no, it through. I'll boast about it. What? I'll but I'll boast about it. Oh yeah. Think it through and then put away your childish attempts to be super holy by reinserting a law which can only condemn you. That's it. Can't do any more than condemn you. Okay, 310. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him 
in his death. Okay, this one doesn't say I want. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. These words now continue to explain the words of that I may gain Christ from verse 8. That, in turn, was tied to the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord of the same verse. By gaining Christ, he, and thus we, anybody that comes to Christ, can then know him and the power of his resurrection. This is an immediate act of knowledge. In other words, by putting all other things behind, we come to know Christ. However, this knowledge will be something that we can and should build upon for all of our lives. This is what I was talking about earlier. Why would somebody say, well, I don't really need to go to, to church on Sunday morning? And I'm not saying you have to go to a physical church, okay? There are people that attend online that have no church of value where they live, or they have no church at all where they live, okay? And I feel bad about that, but I'm so thankful that they're here and that we can fellowship with them while we're, you know, having our service here. And they can enjoy the Bible and they can enjoy whatever uh, comes their way in that regard, okay? But the point is that if you can go to church and you don't have a good church, we'll welcome you here. If you do have a good church and you want to go there, that's fine. We'll miss you, but we're glad that you're fellowshipping somewhere. But don't deny yourself the chance to know Jesus in his fullness, to share in the Lord's Supper with people that also feel that way, to fellowship and to read the word and to think on the word and do all of the things that shows that you're grateful for what Christ has done. Where's the gratitude in saying, well, I'm saved and okay, I don't need to do anything else. It's true. It is true. You're saved and you don't need to do anything else. But where is the gratitude in your heart for what Christ has done? Despite this, it is the immediate act which is being referred to. There is a time in a person's life when they come to know that they are separate from God and that Christ is the answer to that separation. It is he who can and does fill the need which cannot otherwise be met. And further, knowing Christ includes and hinges upon knowing the power of his resurrection. If you don't know that he was resurrected, then you're not saved because that's part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. And in understanding that, you can know the power of his resurrection. If Christ, hey, how you doing there, Thor? Thank you. Just put it back there. And how's your beautiful wife today? Okay. Just put it anywhere. All right. I love you. Are you having a good day? Yeah. Did you get a lot of work done? Yeah. Good boy. Okay, we're going to get back to class. I'll read that again. And further, knowing Christ includes and hinges upon knowing the power of his resurrection. If Christ was not raised from the dead... Then, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he writes, you know, almost the entire chapter speaks of this, but there's a couple verses that we'll pick out in particular. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. I got to tell you what, it is just filled with thoughts about Christ and what he did and just the power of the resurrection. But he says in verse 12, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised. See, what people are doing is they're saying, well, yeah, I believe that Christ rose from the dead, but there was no resurrection of the people after him. Okay, it was just him being resurrected and that's it. 
okay? And so he's saying, well, if that's true, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then even Christ wasn't raised, okay? Because the Bible speaks of the resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if he is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, your faith is not saving faith if you don't believe in the resurrection because that's what Christ came to do. He came to resurrect and then provide the form of that for the people that follow after him. That is eternal life. If you don't resurrect, then there's no such thing as eternal life. There's just eternal grave, okay? So he's trying to logically get people to think these things through. Yes, and we are also, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he, was, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable of all people on the planet. Because here we're saying that we are have a hope that Jesus Christ is risen and he isn't risen. What are we doing? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That might as well just party your life away. Whatever feels good, go out and do it. Enjoy it because Christ isn't risen from the dead. But if he is, there's a lot that's contingent on that fact, including what we should be doing with our lives. Without the resurrection, everything else, all of it falls apart. There is no atonement for sin, for example. If that is true, then the death of Christ was pointless. He died as any other criminal died, and he did so bearing sin, because death is the wages of sin. Unless he came out of the grave proving that he had no sin, then sin he had. And so knowing the power of his resurrection allows us the desire and even the confidence to know him in a fully assured and wonderful way. From this point, we simply grow in our knowledge of him. This knowledge includes, the, Paul's words, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Once it is accepted and believed that Christ is resurrected, it then should lead us to wonder why he was resurrected. Someone who is resurrected is someone who was dead. dead. If a person is dead and then resurrects, we have full confidence in what that resurrection implies. But we should then look back on what caused the death in the first place. What is the significance of what occurred? Everything keeps tying itself back, one thing to another with Christ. Everything is tied together and there are no loose ends. Right. In Christ's death comes atonement for sin, okay? If Christ came out of the grave and he, that means that he had no sin, then what did he die for, okay? Thus, we can see that he died for us. That's absolutely right. We stand justified before, Hello, we stand justified before God because of his death, of which the resurrection is the proof. As noted above, if Jesus died in a state of sin, then he was no Christ, but he is the Christ and his work is sufficient for the work of God promised in him, even from the foundation of the world. It all ties together. Everything is contingent on everything else. Death, 
burial, resurrection. Each one points to the other, and it's inescapable what occurred. And if one didn't occur, then none of them occurred. But if they did occur, then there was a reason for each one in its ordered, in its order. Okay, from this understanding, we should then desire to know the fellowship of his sufferings. He died for us, and so we should also die to sin through him. This isn't simply the state of justification which we are granted by faith in him. This is the process of sanctification where we grow to become more like him. In this we conform to his death, dying to sin because he died for sin. Okay, there are two ways of looking at sanctification. Most people think, before I finish up, most people think of sanctification as me doing something in order to be like Jesus, right? I mean, I, we're growing in holiness. We're growing in sanctification, okay? Mostly the New Testament actually speaks of a different type of sanctification. It is positional sanctification, and it is immediate. Paul says that you were sanctified, you were glorified, okay? And he says this in several different ways in the New Testament. You are sanctified, okay? That means you are sanctified. It doesn't mean that you are being sanctified. You are sanctified. Because if you weren't, then you wouldn't be saved because God is not going to have a relationship with somebody who is not sanctified. Everybody got that? So we are sanctified. The sanctification that I'm talking about here is a sanctification that comes from us wanting to be like him, okay? So if you don't do that, if you just go home and sit around after being saved and never do anything, you're just as sanctified as you who comes to church every week and goes to seminary and becomes a great preacher or something, okay? You're on the same, you're both sanctified before the Lord. But you, the one that's going to go to seminary and become a great preacher or a missionary, whatever you're going to do, are being sanctified in this life to be like him. You are the one that will have an impact on other people. That person is just a slug that's sitting on a couch watching TV and there's no effect on anybody else, okay? So we are all sanctified the moment that we come to Christ. That's positional sanctification, but we are working out our sanctification at the same time in these bodies for holiness and for a representation to the world of what Christ can do for people. It's like the drunk that's laying in the gutter, he hears the message, and all of a sudden he becomes an upstanding citizen. He starts going to work and he starts, you know, takes up carpentry and he builds nice things and pe tells people, you know, I was a terrible drunk until Jesus changed me. That person is being sanctified in his life and he's also helping other people to understand the state as well. So there's the difference, and I wanted to kind of explain that to you. Okay, uh, but there's more to consider. Christ's death wasn't just an atonement for sin, but it was an act of selfless love. It was an act of devotion to his Father, and it was a pattern to follow. In all ways of which we could ponder so many more, we could do it all day long, what does Christ's death mean to me? We are to join to Christ and become Christ-like. Those are the things that he did that we want to emulate and to try to be like, okay? I will admit this in front of you all. I am the biggest failure at this part of the process on the planet, and I understand that. This theme literally permeates the New Testament. Of numerous passages, you can write them down. I'm not going to read them because we only got four more minutes. And verses, we can go to Romans 8.17, 2 Corinthians 1.5, Colossians 1.24, and 2 Timothy 2.11. Even Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter 4.13.
So you've got those verses that talk about this state that we can grow in and that we can become like. I want to be like Christ. I want to emulate him in all ways, okay? You're already saved. You're not doing it for salvation. You're doing it for desire and for love, okay? Life application. When we give the gospel to someone and they accept it, that person, I should make, and he accepts it, not they, that's plural mixed with a singular, sorry, okay, um, uh, and he accepts it, that he has sin, that he deserves death because of sin, that Jesus took his place in the payment of that sin, and that he rose again to prove this. We merely start that person on a journey which should then be pursued with every fiber of his being. That's what we would hope. We should not be content to say, you are now on the highway to heaven, which is certainly true, but we should say you have just started on the assured highway to heaven. You're going there, buddy, but I want you to progress as you go. All right? Use your time until you get there wisely and get to know Christ in every detail and in every way imaginable. In doing so, you will live a life far more satisfying than any other way that you could live it. I absolutely guarantee that this is true. I hope you accept that that is true and that even when you're having really, really difficult times, when you're miserable, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling dejected, when your whole world is against you, when your family is against you, whatever your problems are, if you understand that you are on the road to heaven, that this is a good life to live that is the most rewarding life to live. It's much better than going back and getting drunk every night. It's much better than going back and smoking pot every night or all the things that kept you from a happy relationship with God, okay? This is the good life right now, and it's not ever gonna get any better than being in Jesus right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be in Jesus, that that was offered to us, that we can have it and that we do have it when we accept the premise of the gospel and that it is a gift that it can't be earned and that people that want to force that on us should be turned away there's nothing that we can add to what christ has done the cross is sufficient and so we accept it we believe it and we want to know you more because of it thank you for jesus christ our lord and it's in his beautiful name we pray amen all right Okay, back this thing up here. Break, break, break. Yes, break. <laughs>